Thank you, Keely. That was a few years back. It was halftime at the Super Bowl. A man was sitting up in the stands, and there had been a question bugging him for the past hour and a half or so. There was an empty seat right next to him. And he thought that was a little strange, so at halftime, he leaned over to the guy sitting on the on the opposite of that empty one, and he asked him, hey, you know anything about this empty seat? Is it yours? And he says, no, actually, that was my wife's seat, but she couldn't make it today because she died two weeks ago. The guy said, I'm so sorry to hear that, but I'm shocked that one of your friends or family members didn't jump at the opportunity to come and sit in her seat at the Super Bowl. And the guy says, yeah, it kind of surprised me too, but all my friends and family insisted on attending her funeral today. I was thinking about that and got to thinking, when it comes to the Super Bowl, we're shocked if there's an empty seat up in the stands, aren't we? But when it comes to Sunday morning in a church service, it doesn't surprise us at all. It's kind of sad, don't you think, that people are much more excited about a sporting event than they are about being with Jesus. Just this morning, I was outside for a few minutes with Manuel and Many of you know Manuel. He's donning the orange vest each Sunday morning. It's oftentimes the first one you see when you pull into the parking lot. And when I walked outside, Manuel was standing there on the sidewalk just facing the soccer fields. And I tried to get his attention from behind, and at first he didn't hear me, and I knew what Manuel was doing. Manuel's a prayer warrior. And he was facing across the street praying for all the soccer players and their families. And so I went up, and Manuel and I talked for a few minutes, and we started praying together for the families across the street because it's just a reality in our nation today that people do get more excited about a bunch of men throwing around a pigskin or kids kicking a soccer ball than they do about being with Jesus. But today we're going to look at an exception to the rule. As we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to be ministering to 5,000 men, not even counting the women and children in the crowd. And he is going to be ministering to them, and these people went out of their way to be with Jesus, to be loved on by Jesus, to hear Jesus' teaching, and to be touched by the Master's hand. And I can tell you, on that day, on that hillside, it was standing room only. There wasn't a single empty seat in the house. And so on that day, many people came hungry for Jesus, Not necessarily for all the right reasons, but they did come hungry for Jesus. And by the end of that day, all of the thousands in that crowd had come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ really satisfies. Amen? So I encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. As usual, we also have message notes for you in your bulletin. I encourage you to pull those out and have a pen or pencil so you can jot down some notes and fill in some blanks along the way. Uh, We hope that whenever you hear a message on a Sunday morning, you continue to wrestle with it and open God's Word. Maybe it's a springboard for your personal devotions on Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week. And so we hope that those message notes are a help to you as you continue to dive into God's Word this week. Amen? I'm calling this message today, Good Eats and the Good Confession. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us to dive into your word. I pray that we would have ears to hear, because Lord, sometimes we have some wax built up in our ears and we don't hear your voice too well. Lord, we pray that our minds would be open 
because sometimes, Lord, we close our minds to what is uncomfortable or, or uneasy to hear. And, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, because we know that, Lord, our hearts drive our thoughts and our hearts drive our actions. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have those soft hearts that you desire to be within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Say amen if you're there, please. All right, here we go, starting in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countrysides and and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. Jesus replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all of this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces that were left over. May God bless us as we study His Word today and hide it in our hearts. Well, you look at those first couple verses, verses 10 and 11, and it's helpful to know the backdrop. Most of you, I think, were here with us last week, and you remember what happened in the first nine verses of the chapter. Remember that at the top of chapter 9, Jesus calls His twelve apostles to Him, and He gives them power, and He gives them authority. And for the first time in in all of those many months that they had been hanging around Jesus, for the first time, He equips them to go out on their own, two by two, and replicate His ministry. And so it says there early in chapter 9 that once He gave them the power and authority, they were able to go out with that power and heal all sorts of diseases. They were able, with that power He had given them, to cure many who were sick. They were able with that authority he gave them to drive out all kinds of evil spirits and with that authority to preach authoritatively the good news of Jesus Christ that led to people's salvation. And so he sends them out, six groups of two each, into the surrounding countryside, town by town, and they were on this mission for at least a few weeks, quite possibly even for a few months, going throughout Galilee replicating Jesus' ministry of healing and preaching that they had observed so closely for over a year. The disciples headed out on foot uh, without a stick for protection, without any change of clothes, without any food, without any spending money. They took off in these teams of two, packing nothing but the power and the authority that Jesus Christ had given them. And as we saw last week, that's all they needed. As they faithfully obeyed Jesus' command and carried out His marching orders, His mission, God supplied all of their needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Isn't God good? All the time. They were doing exactly what He had told them to do, and God met every need as they walked in obedience to His command. So after a period of time, as I said, maybe it was a few weeks, possibly it was even several months, 
the twelve apostles returned to Jesus, and according to verse 10, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Now, we are able to read about this from all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about this retreat that Jesus made. And so as we piece together the details of Jesus beginning this retreat with his disciples after they've returned from that mission he sent them on, as we piece these details together, we can get a better idea of what was going on. So on the screen there, we're going to put a map up for you. So you can see where the red bubble is. That's Capernaum. That's most likely where the disciples returned to Jesus as they came back from their two-by-two mission. And so Jesus, we know from the other gospel writers, had them get onto a boat and they traveled due east to the shores outside of that little town of Bethsaida. And so they traveled due east a few miles outside of the shores of Bethsaida. And from there it seems pretty clear that they went east inland into the hill country even further outside of Bethsaida. And so he wanted to go to a place that was remote. He wanted to go to a place that was desolate so they could have some one-on-twelve time and debrief and, and process what had happened on their mission. Now, why did Jesus so intentionally take him to such a remote place? And I think the quick answer is because they desperately needed that time with him alone, away from the crowds. How many of you have ever served several days in a row in a ministry? Maybe it was vacation Bible school. A lot of us have, right? Monday, you're excited, man. You're teaching those kids about Jesus. They're bouncing up and down in front. We've got Annabelle and Kaylee and Kayla and the others up here in the praise team, and they're getting the kids excited. Tuesday, you've still got a lot of passion and excitement. Wednesday, by the time it gets to Friday, you're like, you know, this was fun, but I'm pretty tired. Some of you have gone to summer camp with our kids or teenagers, and Monday and Tuesday, you're running off of adrenaline. You're excited. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're just ready to go get a good night's rest and a decent shower at home. Some of you have even served on a short-term mission trip, and it's exciting. It's invigorating to serve the Lord day after day, and you're making a difference in people's lives, and you don't need much sleep because God is getting you so excited about what you're doing, and you're thrilled to just be used by Him. But those of you who have done ministry day after day know that sooner or later, you need some R&R. Your body is tired, and physically you need to recharge your batteries, don't you? Emotionally, you feel spent, and you need to recharge your emotional batteries. And spiritually, you just need your spiritual cup refilled because you've been given so much over that week. Well, imagine these apostles for the first time in their lives. They had been doing the healing. They had been doing the opening of the blind's eyes. They had been curing the illnesses. They had been driving out the demons, which at times were quite stubborn. They were the ones preaching the gospel and seeing very needy people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so when they came back, without a doubt, they were exhausted and they needed some R&R. I imagine as they went inland from the shores outside of Bethsaida, that green hillside looked about like this. And so imagine they're in this beautiful, remote, serene location. And there they are. They can still from the hillside see the Sea of Galilee in the distance. They know their boat's still back there behind the hills somewhere. It's safely anchored. It'll be there when they need it. And so there they are finally after all of these weeks 
of expending so much physical and emotional and spiritual energy. Finally, they have some alone time with Jesus. But very quickly, we read after verse 10 that the crowd starts coming up the hillside and it goes from this beautiful scene that looks like this to a scene that looks like this. And the disciples' heart must have dropped. Really? Now, some of us in the room today are introverts. An introvert, in a nutshell, is one who does not get energized in groups of people. An introvert oftentimes is drained by being around groups of people. That doesn't mean that an introvert doesn't like people as much as an extrovert does. Many introverts love people. Just the way God has wired them, they tend to be a little more drained around people. How many introverts do we have in the room? You don't have to be ashamed. It's a good thing. Now, in the room, we have some extroverts, don't we? Extroverts don't necessarily like people more than introverts do, but extroverts, the way God has wired us, we tend to be inspired and really re-energized by being around people. If you have an extrovert who is tired and is sitting down and thinking about taking a nap, and all of a sudden a group of people come over to the house, they get their second wind. And they're energized and ready to go. An introvert, if the introvert is tired and sitting down about to take a nap and there's a knock at the door, the last thing that introvert wants to do is answer the door. Because they realize, I need some alone time. I need to recharge my batteries. So we look at this group of 12 disciples. Certainly there were some extroverts. Maybe there were a few of the 12, even though they'd spent all of these weeks ministering to needy people, probably there were a few that said, all right, the crowd's coming, let's go for it. But without a doubt, there were some who, when they saw the crowd coming up over that hillside, interrupting their perfectly beautiful retreat time with Jesus, Certainly there were some that said, you've got to be kidding me. Really? We've just spent the last month ministering every single day to needy people. And here come thousands of them to us again. Can't you cut us a break, God? Can't you give us at least one day, one lousy day, without being surrounded by needy people? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Sometimes we're so tired and we're so spent and we're physically exhausted and we're emotionally exhausted and our spiritual cups are pretty empty and we just feel we don't have any left in us to give. And that must have been where at least some of those disciples were. But notice what Jesus does halfway through verse 11. Jesus welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed healing. I love what Mark tells us. Mark includes a little detail that Luke doesn't include. Mark tells us in chapter 6, verse 34, that when Jesus saw the large crowd coming to them, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that good? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that word compassion, guess which Greek word it is? My favorite Greek word in the New Testament. Most of the time when I share my favorite Greek word, I share it in the noun form. That great word, splachna. Say it with me. I love hearing it. Okay, remember, I always have to give the warning. Do not spit on the person's head in front of you when you say that word. 
So normally I share the noun form. Right here is the verb form. It's even better. Splachna is the noun form. The verb form is splachnitsomai. Say that with me. Splachnitsomai. That word splachna literally is translated as guts. It means to have compassion that comes deep from within. And so that verb form, splachnitsomai, which is only used of Jesus or by Jesus in the New Testament, that verb form means to have a gut-wrenching compassion and deep concern for people. And so when the crowd comes over the hillside, in all likelihood, some of those apostles were saying to themselves, you've got to be kidding me. The last thing I want to see in this beautiful, serene location are thousands of people who need us. But Jesus had this gut-wrenching compassion for the crowd that was coming His way. On this particular day, when Jesus and His disciples were physically tired and emotionally drained and badly in need of some spiritual refreshment, Jesus saw the thousands of needy people coming His way. And as He saw them, His heart broke for them because they were lost sheep who desperately needed a shepherd. And so Jesus put aside his own tiredness and he tapped his own spiritual reserves as he spent hours loving on these people. He shared with them the good news about the kingdom of God and he healed those who were physically sick. In verse 12, as the day is quickly winding down, Jesus is likely by this point, by the time we get to verse 12, he's likely been ministering to them for several hours. It says, late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and they said, Jesus, please send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Remember, they were miles away from Bethsaida. They were quite a way out, ways outside of town. And so in verse 12, when we look at what the apostles said, I I think there was probably some compassion in their voice. They said, Jesus, look around you. There's no Del Taco around the corner. There's no In-N-Out Burger. They can't get a double-double in five minutes and be back to continue the ministry. They've got to walk away. So there was certainly some compassion in their voices. They said, in essence, Jesus, uh, if we keep on teaching the people out here in the middle of nowhere, tonight they're going to go to bed cold and hungry. So let's go ahead and wrap this up and send them away so they can find a place to stay and get some food for the night. So I think there was some compassion in their voices. But I think at the same time, there was a little bit of selfishness in their request as well. There had to have been something in them that said, Jesus, kudos to you. We're super impressed. You're just as tired as we are, and you spent the last few hours of this retreat of ours ministering to thousands of people. That's phenomenal. Great job, Jesus. But I think now is the time to send the crowd away, let them go off and get their dinner, and we'll get back to our retreat time with you. Does that sound good, Jesus? And Jesus responded by giving them a command. Probably the last command they would ever want to hear on this particular occasion at this time. What does Jesus say in verse 13? You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Down in verse 14, Luke tells us that there were about 5,000 men in the crowd. But Matthew, in his account of the feeding of the 5,000, tells us that that 5,000 number didn't include women and children. So there were quite likely between 10 and 15,000 people in the crowd that day on that hillside in that remote area. 
Somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15,000 people. Without a doubt, the 12 disciples were baffled by Jesus' command. According to John chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus' disciple Philip responded by saying, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one in this crowd to have a single bite. He said, you know what? You get a denarii for working a full day in Israel. And so if you worked for eight months, you know, some... 175, 200 days, however many days they would work in eight months. He says, you couldn't even give a single bite to every person in this crowd. And you want us to feed them? A while back I mentioned to you that in the Sea of Galilee, there's a very popular fish, the most popular fish that is caught. And it's this little guy right here. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It's called the tilapia Galilea. You can see by the man's finger, this is a tiny little fish. We're so glad. Most of you have heard this story a number of times. Uh, by the way, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus, except for his resurrection, that appears in all four gospel accounts. You'll find it in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John. And so I'm so thankful it appears in all these accounts because John is the one that tells us it was the little boy that brought the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. John's the one that tells us that. And so Andrew brings that little boy to Jesus, according to what John tells us. Andrew brings the little boy after Philip has already said eight months' wages couldn't even give everybody in the crowd a single bite. Andrew comes up with the little boy and says, well, he's got uh, five loaves and two fish, but how far will that go among so many? And so when it says two small fish, it was most likely one of those tilapia galilea. And the loaves, this one isn't a a great rendition of what they would have looked like because in Israel they always would have had unleavened bread. So you can think of maybe a larger saltine cracker. And so you've got these teeny little fish, the tilapia galilea, sometimes nicknamed St. Peter's fish, caught right there locally in the Sea of Galilee. And then these five little dinner rolls. It would be fine for a 10-year-old boy but not nearly enough to feed a grown man, let alone 5,000 men plus the women and children with them. And so here they were with the five loaves and the two fish, and we can understand why Andrew and the other apostles were feeling completely inadequate to carry out Jesus' command. After all, how on earth could 12 men possibly feed some 10,000 hungry people in the middle of nowhere? The apostles' feelings of helplessness are understandable, aren't they? We can understand why they would be confused. But don't forget what they had been doing over the past month. They had been traveling from town to town, healing all kinds of diseases, curing all types of sicknesses, driving out all kinds of demons, left and right. These disciples had just spent the past few weeks doing the impossible on a daily basis. And yet here on this occasion, they seemed to be stuck, not figuring out how they could feed so many people. They froze up. I like how Chuck Swindoll comments on this verse. He writes in his commentary, before they had a chance to regain their strength, a sea of people washed up to their hips, bringing with them waves of human need. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You you can imagine people coming, just washing up to their hips, bringing waves of human need. These were needy people and there were thousands of them. Suddenly, he writes, in spite of their recent infusion of divine power, the twelve found themselves powerless to meet the most basic human need of all, the need to eat. 
Isn't that something? The disciples could open the eyes of the blind. They could make a crippled man's legs function again. But they couldn't figure out a way to feed a hungry crowd. Verse 14, Jesus instructed the twelve to ask the crowd to sit down in groups of 50 each. And so as they sit down in these groups of 50, verses 15 and 16, the people do so. Then Jesus takes that little boy's lunch. Certainly in a crowd of 10,000, there was at least a little more food in the crowd. But the only one that's willing to donate theirs is the little boy. He said, Here you go, Jesus. You can have my lunch. And so Jesus takes that little boy's lunch, those, those five little dinner rolls and those two little tilapia Galilea fish, and he lifts them up to heaven. And he prays and he blesses them. And then he starts handing them out to his 12 disciples. And then they probably had some baskets at that point. And so each of the disciples maybe had a a piece of that first little fish and and a, a little piece of one of those five loaves of bread. And so they are wondering how they hand this out. But they go ahead and hand it out to someone in the front row of the crowd. And as they hand it out, they see that that person takes the bread and takes the fish. But when they look back in the basket, they're shocked because it's still there. And so they're doing a double take. They look and know it's still in the guy's hand that they just gave it to. But at the same time, it's here. It's there. It's here. It can't be here because it's there, but it can't be there because it's here. That's weird. They take it out of the basket, and now they're looking more carefully at what they're doing, and they hand it to the second person, and they look again, and it's still there. But now there's two people eating. And so they keep on doing this, and by the time they've fed dozens of people, the bread and the fish are still in the basket. And so they just keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and before they know it, all 10,000-plus people in the crowd have eaten and the bread and the fish are still in the basket. In fact, if they're not mistaken, there's more in the basket than when they started. And in a crowd out in the middle of nowhere that had hiked miles to get there, certainly there were some hungry men that had seconds and others who had thirds. And if there were teenagers in the group, they probably had fourth helpings. And so they had the bread and the, and the fish still there, and Jesus says, collect the leftovers. And they collect the leftovers, and there are 12 baskets filled with leftovers. Now, the word that's used here, translated as basket, is a Greek word that refers to a mid-sized basket that might be used on a short trip. And we're told that the size of the basket and the word used here in the original Greek is large enough to hold enough food for a grown man to eat for two or three days. So they filled 12 of these baskets, and this is what hit me as I was studying the passage last week. Earlier in chapter 9, when Jesus had sent his 12 disciples out two by two to go and minister in every town to heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, etc., when he sent them to do that, how much food did Jesus allow them to take? And yet here we have, after Jesus feeds the five to 10,000, how many baskets are left over? How many disciples are there? When he sent them out on their mission, he sent them out with no food. As we saw last week, he wanted them to move quickly. He wanted them to move effectively. And so he didn't want them to travel heavy. He wanted them to travel light. But one of the main reasons he sent them with no food was to teach them to trust in God who supplies all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And yet here on this occasion, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus allows each of his disciples to have two to three days worth of food. In essence, saying to them, guys, if you will only just trust me, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is good. 
Was it a coincidence that there were 12 baskets and 12 disciples? I don't think so. Jesus always is so good to supply our needs when we walk in obedience to him. Starting in verse 18. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private, notice that there's no transition word here. It doesn't say immediately or the next day. It says once. Luke does not include for us all of the events that proceeded after the feeding of the 5,000. You can go to Matthew, you can go to Mark, and you can go to John to find more details about what happened in the days that followed. Luke, for whatever reason, skips ahead probably several weeks beyond the feeding of the 5,000. So he says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He must be raised to life. Now, this is such an important passage. It wouldn't do it justice for us to spend only five or ten minutes on it this morning. And so we'll just touch on it this morning. And Lord willing, we'll spend a little bit more time with it next week. Such an important passage. But I mentioned to you that Luke, for whatever reason, does not include some of the details of what happened in the days following the feeding of the 5,000 that the other gospel writers include. If you were to look at the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew and Mark and John, you would find out that the very next day, according to John, something miraculous happened. After the crowd was dismissed, after the 5,000 was fed, Jesus uh, was spending a little bit of time with his apostles in the evening, and then he told them to get back on the boat and go across back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You may remember what happened. They're going across west now, back toward Capernaum in the middle of the night. All of a sudden, one of those storms kicks up again. Not much different from the storm that had kicked up when they were going to the area of the Gadarenes before Jesus had healed that demoniac. And and so the storm kicks up, but unfortunately this time Jesus isn't on the boat. And so they're getting scared and the waves are beating and the winds are racing against the sails of that boat. They don't know what to do. And all of a sudden they look out and who's walking on the water? Hot dog, it's Jesus. He's walking on the water. At first they think he's a ghost, but pretty soon they realize it's not a ghost. Peter says, if you're not a ghost, tell me to walk out on water. And Jesus says, good with me. Come on out here, Peter. So Peter steps out of the boat, starts walking on water. He's doing pretty well as long as he focuses on Jesus. But he takes his eyes off Jesus. What happens? He starts sinking. He flaps his hands. He can't fly. That's not working. He sinks down. Jesus reaches, pulls him up. They both get on the boat. The storm calms down. The very next day, the crowd is there again, just in a different place this time, and Jesus teaches them about himself being the bread of life. John shares that with us. So Jesus had a busy 24 hours immediately after feeding the 5,000. We find out that a few days, possibly a few weeks later, Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000. And that's a blessing we read about, if I remember correctly, both in Matthew and in Mark. And so Jesus is very busy in the days and weeks following the feeding of the 5,000. Luke must have thought, well, Matthew and Mark have already recorded this. John's going to record it a little bit later when he writes his gospel account. So I'm going to cut to this next part. I want to make sure my readers don't miss. 
the good confession of Jesus Christ. This passage is so important. First of all, I'd like you to notice in verse 18 what Jesus was doing before he asked them the question, who do the crowds say that I am? What was Jesus doing? Jesus was praying. Remember that when we began the study of the Gospel of Luke several months ago, I mentioned to you that one of Luke's favorite things to focus on, one of his focal points in his writing, is Jesus' prayer life. If you go back and look in the early chapters of Luke, you find that when John the Baptist, his birth is being announced for the first time to his father Zechariah as he's there offering incense in the temple. What's Zechariah doing? Zechariah is praying when the angel comes and tells him about John the Baptist's birth coming. And then Jesus, when he begins his ministry, if you look at chapter 3, Luke is the one gospel writer that tells us exactly what Jesus was doing when the Holy Spirit descended upon him from heaven. Remember what he was doing? He had just been baptized. As he was coming up out of the water, he was was praying. And as he was praying, the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of that dove. In chapter 6, Luke tells us that Jesus spent an entire night praying before he chose his 12 disciples. All night he was spending in prayer before he chose them. Later here in chapter 9, Jesus will be praying as he's transfigured on a mountain and speaks with Elijah and Moses. Before Jesus was arrested, Luke tells us he was praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus hung on the cross, Luke is the one gospel writer who tells us that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Luke is the gospel writer that tells us before Jesus hung his head and died there on the cross, he said this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke records for us that Jesus was praying at the most strategic and important points in his ministry. Here in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, it shouldn't surprise us that at such an important moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was praying with his disciples. This was the key moment when Jesus would reveal his true identity as the promised Christ to his disciples. But on the heels of revealing that he was the Christ, allowing Peter to vocalize that himself, on the heels of that, Jesus would then begin for the first time to set his sights on Jerusalem and tell his twelve disciples what must happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He wouldn't simply be the Christ, he would be the suffering Christ. And notice what he tells them. He says, when we get there to Jerusalem, I'll be rejected. I will be killed. But I will also be raised to life on the third day. And so for the first time, these disciples are hearing what we know to be the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they are thrilled to be able to know that Jesus is the Christ But their hearts must have sank and their minds must have been filled with confusion if for the first time he's letting them know that he's not going to be a victorious Christ leading an army against the Roman Empire. He's going to be a suffering Christ. Just according to Isaiah chapter 53, who is going to be bruised for our iniquities and crushed for our sins. The weight of all the world's sin will be laid upon him. All the iniquity of the world will be placed on him. And the disciples at this point in time could not even begin to wrap their minds around what Jesus was saying. But he told them here, and as we see the chapters unfold leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, we'll find Jesus several other times revealing this reality that he was going to be headed for the cross. 
for the sins of mankind. We'll look at that good confession a little more closely next week, but I want to make sure that you have with you today three important lessons from the passage we've looked at today. Here it is. Lesson number one. If you have those message notes handy, this is on the back. You can jot down a few blanks there. Lesson number one. Here it is. Sooner or later, needy people will interrupt your R&R. And when that happens, Jesus calls you to tap your physical and spiritual reserves and serve them with compassion. Amen? Sooner or later, needy people will interrupt your needed R&R. When that happens, Jesus calls you to tap your spiritual and physical reserves and serve them with compassion. How many parents do we have in the room today? How many of you moms would say, you learn this lesson within the first 24 hours of your baby being born? I would imagine that there is not a more needy creature on the planet than a newborn baby. Moms, would you agree? Dads, would you agree? Oh, is some of you saying your husband? Uh, I, I didn't hear that, so I'll ignore that. The most needy creature... <laughs> that is pretty funny. Uh, the most needy creature on the planet... My wife better not have said amen to that. The most needy <laughs> creature on the planet has to be a baby. You see, when a, a baby is hungry that baby will start to scream. When the baby eats, but then has a gas bubble, that baby will scream. When the baby has a wet diaper, she'll scream. When she has a dirty diaper, she'll scream. If someone comes up and looks in the baby's face and starts doing this, oh, do, 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 aren't you a cute little thing? And the baby thinks that person sticking their face in my face is ugly and has got bad breath, that baby will scream. And if the baby has nothing better to do, the baby will. That's what babies do. They're incredibly needy. And I kind of think, moms and dads, that God allowed babies to come into our homes to teach us a little bit of splachnitzomai compassion. You've got this little baby that you would give your life for, who wakes you up time and again in the middle of the night, just when you drift off to a nice deep sleep, and that wonderful dream is coming, all of a sudden as you're dreaming about fields of lilies and a table full of your favorite foods and a beautiful vacation with the waves crashing, all of a sudden, ah, 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 you hear it in the monitor, the baby's screaming and wakes you up from your bed sleep. And because you love that baby, you go in and you take care of whatever that need is, whether it's the wet diaper or the dirty diaper, whether it's the bottle that's needed or the burping that's needed, or maybe uh, something is, is just crimping at its skin and it's pinching the baby. And you figure it out. And in compassion, you bring that baby to a place of rest and peace, don't you? And I can't help but think that maybe, parents, God gave us that baby as a taste of what was inevitably going to happen as we follow Jesus Christ. And we will have individuals come into our lives that are just as needy as that baby, but aren't nearly as cute. We'll have individuals come into our lives that are just as needy as that baby but aren't as adorable in the family photos. And Jesus wants us to understand that when your physical tank is empty and when you feel emotionally spent and spiritually you feel like you don't have anything more to give, Jesus in essence says, trust me. 
disciples, I know that you had every intention of being up on this beautiful hillside and spending the next few days just the twelve of you and me. And I know it feels like your wonderful plans for a retreat have been terribly interrupted by these needy people. But trust me. Trust me. And you will find that as you walk in obedience to my commands, you will be able to tap some reserves that you didn't know existed. When Jesus Christ puts a needy person in your path and you think you have nothing left to give that person, you better believe that you do have something to give that person. Otherwise, your all-knowing Savior would not have put that person in your path in the first place, would He? He knows you. He knows me better than we know ourselves. Jesus Christ says, I want you to have that spluck, neat so my compassion, that gut-wrenching compassion, even when you believe you have nothing left to give. Christianity is about many things. And one of the main things Christianity is about is about serving people. We serve our Lord and we serve people. Lesson number two. The disciples' power to do the impossible could never be separated from their ongoing dependence upon their Master. Both for them and for us, Jesus is the supply and we are His conduits. I find it a little bit baffling that Jesus' apostles could drive out any kind of demon and heal any kind of disease and cure the sick and lead people to Christ and they couldn't figure out how to feed a few thousand people. I find that a little baffling, but I think one of the lessons Jesus was teaching them is to constantly depend upon Him. Even if I have given you the power to heal, even if I have given you the authority to preach My Word, every single day you need to come to Me and be dependent upon Me because, disciples, I am ultimately the supply of all miracles. Disciples, Jesus says, I am ultimately the one who brings the healing. I am ultimately the one who will soften a hard heart so you can see someone saved. And so you have to constantly come to me for the supply, but make no mistake about it, I choose to use you as a conduit through which I touch this hurting and desperate world. So when needy people come to you, you lean hard onto Jesus. Because without Jesus, we are nothing. We can do nothing apart from His strength and His power and His authority. But as you lean on Jesus, don't step back and say, okay, you take care of it. When He has put that person right in front of you, right in your path, He wants you to be the conduit through which His healing, His blessing, His salvation comes. He is the supply. We are the conduits. We stay dependent on Him. And for whatever strange reason, He has made Himself dependent on us to apportion His miracles, to apportion His salvation to those that are right in front of us. Jesus is the supply. We are the conduits. Finally, lesson number three. Jesus' greatest ministry moments came on the heels of deep personal prayer. So too will ours. Isn't that good? Jesus' greatest, most powerful ministry moments came on the heels of of deep personal prayer, and so too will ours. It was just a few weeks ago that Gary stood before us, and Gary's the chairman of our elders this year, and he let us know that the elders have been talking and praying about what God would have us do in the months to come. Please hold on before putting your papers away. This is important. And sharing with you that in recent months we've been seeking the Lord and 
we've known for the last three and a half years that at some point God would say, you know, it's time to move closer to where people are in town, closer to where the need is. God opened the door with the selling of this building a year and a half ago, and in recent months we've been praying, God, we want to know what your timing is. And if you think I'm about to tell you what that timing is, I'm not because I don't know what the timing is yet. But this came to mind as I was thinking about this final lesson. And one thing we asked is that you be in prayer. And I wonder if if God has a timing in store for us that is going to coincide with his people praying that God would reveal his timing. I wonder if God is waiting for us to pray. And honestly, as a church, simply say, God, we don't have all the answers. Uh, We don't have all the solutions. We don't have all the timing. But you have all of those answers and solutions. God, would you reveal to us what your will is and what your timing is to carry out that will? We look back over the last few months and there have been a few people baptized. What a blessing that Veronica was baptized a couple months ago. What a blessing that Michael was baptized just, I think it was three weeks ago. What a blessing that was. But I'm curious, do we on a regular basis, even once a week, but even better, it would be once a day, do we pray for people to be saved? Do we not see more people saved at First Christian Church because we don't pray, God, would you save more people? Would you bring more to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? When we look at our own lives, when we go out to Stater Brothers or Costco or Walmart or wherever it is, when we go to work, when we talk to our neighbors, do we find that God doesn't give us opportunities to minister to them in powerful ways and doesn't give us opportunities to share the gospel? If that's the case, have we ever asked the question, is God not giving me those opportunities because I'm not praying for those opportunities? Do we ever get up in the morning and with our morning prayers say, God, would you give me opportunities today to share the good news of Jesus Christ with whoever you want me to share it with? God, would you give me opportunities today to speak encouragement into the lives of someone who is depressed or discouraged? God, would you give me opportunities to serve you today? Do we ever pray, God, First Christian Church does some wonderful ministry, but God, would you allow us to do greater ministry than we've ever done before? Could you allow us to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we ask or imagine? God, we look out on a day like this, we see more chairs filled than a week ago. God, next Sunday, could you fill every chair? And not only could you fill every chair, I am available over the next seven days to do whatever you want me to do to be your conduit to help fill every empty chair. That's a tougher prayer, isn't it? Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh, did His greatest ministry on the heels of of personal, faithful prayer. And if that's true of Him, who never sinned, who never had a single fault, who never had a stray thought, who created the whole universe and all of His power and His glory, if that was true of Him when He walked this earth, it certainly should be said of us as well. They are a people of committed prayer. And they do great things in this Victor Valley because they pray great things in this Victor Valley. We pray the price. And as we pray the price, we see God move in incredible ways. People have oftentimes said that God is a gentleman and that He interferes in the affairs of men by invitation only. That's certainly not a proverb out of Scripture, but there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. Jesus is waiting for you and me to invite 
to do even greater things through you and me. As in believing prayer, we go to Him and say, God, would you move as you've never moved before? Let's pray. Father, we love You. And we thank You that You're doing some great ministry in our midst. And Lord, we thank You that You have in mind to do even more exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or imagine. So, Lord, I pray that we would pray as you call us to pray. Lord, you say elsewhere in your word, as you were speaking to your disciples, you said the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest fields. And then, Lord Jesus, after that amen, you said, go, I am sending you. Lord, we've got opportunities even this week. Whether it's tomorrow night's prayer meeting, we can come, Lord. Even if we're not used to coming, we can come and pray for each other and pray for these in this, those in this valley that need Christ. But Lord, on Tuesday, we'll have probably dozens of people come into our church building here, coming for food and Lord, you could give us opportunities on Tuesday to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them and see lives changed. On Wednesday, Lord, over there at Center Street Park, as the rescue mission does that Easter extravaganza outreach, Lord, last year there were over 4,000 people there. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to step up on that stage this Wednesday and share the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that people would listen. And I pray that some here would go see Christy after today's service and say, what can I do to help at that FCC table to invite people to church on Easter and share the good news? Even if it's out of our comfort zone, Lord, I pray that we would respond and take advantage of that opportunity. Lord, on Thursday with our women's Bible study, on Friday with our youth night, and all of these opportunities we have as a church this week, Lord, I pray that we would roll up our sleeves. And that we would prayerfully say, God, whatever you want to do to work through me to touch lives, I ask you to do so in Jesus' name. Lord, may we be prayerful. May we be willing vessels, Lord, ready to be used by you. And I pray if there's anyone here today who needs to accept Christ as Savior, that they would not make the most foolish decision they could ever make, which is to walk away from you. I pray, O God, that Eliza be transformed in this place even today. As we make that invitation to come, if you need to receive Christ, I pray that those would come who need to. And those who need prayer, I pray that they would come as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As our praise team comes up, if you're here today and you need prayer, or if you're here today and you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you know your sins are separating you from God and you need those sins to be washed away,